Friends, welcome to This Week in the Way of Jesus, a podcast hosted by the 8th Street Church. We are a spiritual community of hope and transformation that is trying to live this way of Jesus. You'll find both weekly spiritual practices and weekly sermons on this podcast feed. For more information about the 8th Street Church, please visit our website, www.8thstreetchurch.org, or social media pages linked in the show notes. grace and peace, my friends. My name is Banny, and I get to be one of the pastors here at the 8th Street Church. And as we continue our series on the seven last words of Jesus on the cross, we turn to uh, the Gospel of Mark's account in these final moments of Jesus' life. As this God-man hangs on a cross, we, along with the bystanders in the text, hear some of the most honest and terribly frightening words from this one who has come to save us. So with that in mind, I invite you to stand for the reading of the text today as we turn our attention to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 15. Hear the word of the Lord. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, <clears throat> heard it, they said, listen, he is calling for Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was God's son. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, and we say together, thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. So Lent is a season of confession, and so let me make this confession to you today. I don't like the dark. Uh, I specifically don't like the dark when I'm in unfamiliar places, places where there's a lot of corners, things you can't see. Uh, Does anyone share in my confession? Okay. I will also confess that much of my fear of the dark is uh, rather irrational. Much of it stems from imaginative scenarios that have been pumped into me through movies and TV shows. Some of it stems from the evening news and the constant feed of tragedy that we see happening in and around our world. And some of it comes from my own experience. So when I was around seven years old, my older brother and I shared a room. So my older brother, he's three and a half years older than me, so I'm sure he was thrilled to be sharing a room with his younger brother. Uh, I think we managed okay, or so I thought. Now the way our beds were laid out in the room put me in a space where when I was asleep and in my bed, I couldn't see much of the room. So one night, I was trying to fall asleep and kept hearing something. I'd say something to my older brother, and I figured he was probably already asleep. I was like, oh, I'm just hearing things. And so I turned my head toward the only light in the room, and it was coming underneath our doorway. Uh, So there in the darkness, I just fixated on the light as a way to calm my concerned seven-year-old mind. And a few moments later, as my angst started to subside, my brother grabbed my feet and said, ah! 
This, of course, sent me spinning, yelling, and had I been more familiar with curse words at the time, I surely would have used some. I'm not sure exactly what I said or how I responded, but I remember how I felt. I remember how I felt in the dark of the room, and I remember us not sharing rooms for very much longer after that. There was another time on the evening uh, after one of my best friend's wedding, some of the bridal party, we were sharing a hotel room, and uh, in the middle of the night, I felt something grab my leg again. So half asleep, I screamed and I yelled and I shuffled all over the bed, unconsciously trying to find some sense of safety and security. My college roommate just grabbed me and held me, thinking he's having a seizure, something's going on. Just so finally, someone comes to you and they turn on the lights and. We're all a little bit bewildered. What just happened? Uh, was I having a bad dream? Was there someone else in the room? Was this place haunted? After a few moments of questioning and panic, and I'm pretty sure my college roommate said, we should really pray about this, we started piecing some things together. One of the guys had been sleepwalking, and he either grabbed or fell onto my leg, causing the panic within me. And when we eventually calmed down, I think we just slept with the bathroom light on the rest of the night. So I confess to you, I don't like the dark. And in reliving these two scenarios just now, part of me thinks I'm justified in that confession. But it's in the dark that on a Friday afternoon, darkness becomes a place of revealing, a place to see. As darkness covers the land, uh, we see the one hanging on a cross the one who was supposed to save us, crying out this cry of dereliction and abandonment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our faith, this way of Jesus, is full of contradictions. We say things like, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, and blessed are those who weep. But if you have ever been poor, or hungry, or wept, you may not always feel so blessed. We say things like, love your enemies, Pray for those who persecute you, those who wish to do you harm. Paul writes that God chooses the foolish things to shame the wise. But here, Jesus, God in the flesh, crucified on a cross, it's here where we want to draw the line. How is this good news? This moment of utter dereliction and abandonment can be defeating. So how is it that this moment in the darkness is a moment that saves the world? Barbara Brown Taylor writes that darkness is the setting for humanity's closest encounters with the divine. Now, Barbara Brown Taylor didn't share a room with my older brother, but that's beside the point. I think she's onto something here. It's in the darkest moment of the story, in a prayerful cry of dereliction, that God is most clearly revealed for who God really is. Now, some of you may know this, this cry from Jesus, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me, forsaken me? It comes from the 22nd Psalm. So this is not a new prayer, not a new cry, but an old one, one that has been prayed, cried out by the community of faith for generations. Jesus isn't the first to pray this prayer, and Jesus certainly is not the last to pray this prayer. My God, where are you? Why are you so far from me? Jesus isn't asking for a lot here. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of trial, in the midst of abandonment by friends and family and seemingly God, he just prays, God, be near. 
we've tasted the honesty of this prayer ourselves at times. We don't have to look far to hear the echoes of this prayer. Crying babies in a refugee camp in Syria. We hear this cry under the rubble of crumbled buildings in Turkey and the war-torn fields and cities of Ukraine. We hear echoes of this prayer in hospital waiting rooms, in holding cells awaiting the death penalty. We hear this cry in the fields that were once farmed by slaves and the land once occupied by indigenous people. We hear this prayer in the classrooms of our teachers and at the desks of our students. We hear this prayer when a family is torn apart, when a job or a career is lost, and when a child or a sibling or a parent dies. My God, my God, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? Draw near to me. Now this question, this moment on the cross, has been the center of many theological conversations over the years. What does it mean for God to be revealed in this moment? What does that say of God? What does that say of the persons of Father, Son, and Spirit? What does it say of my assumptions of who I think God is or how God should go about the business of being God? And while all these questions are just a few, some that we could wade through this morning, I think the writer of the Gospel of Mark mainly has this last question in mind. What does it say of my assumptions of who I think or believe God is in light of Jesus hanging crucified on a cross? What do I do when I think I have a very clear picture of what it means to be God? But as darkness covers the earth, I'm struck with this horrific and alternative image of what it means to be God. Now, all through, all through the Gospel of Mark, the disciples are portrayed as people who just don't understand. Despite all the time that they've spent with Jesus and the seemingly obvious reality that there's something uniquely special about this rabbi, Jesus, they just don't get it. And, and even when they start to get it, they start to understand a few things, they're still pretty off base in their hope of how Jesus, the Messiah, would actually save them. This is not the most flattering picture we have of the disciples. Over and over again, we see these nincompoops constantly arguing about who was the greatest among them, which of them would be in charge one day. We see them daydreaming of the power and the authority that they would one day yield when they ruled alongside Jesus. And about halfway through Mark, after Jesus has asked the disciples, what are people saying about me? Jesus is then pretty plain with the disciples. Okay, so what do you say about me? Who do you think I am? So Peter, the self-appointed leader of the pack, correctly answers, well, you are the Messiah, the one who has come to save, the one who is going to set all things right. Now, when Peter answers this, Peter and the others have a very distinct vision of just how Jesus was going to save them, just how Jesus was going to set things right, how he would inaugurate God's preferred reality here and now. Now, we'd like to think that their vision was influenced by the words of the prophets. Surely, they were influenced by the words of the prophets. Perhaps they were influenced by the character of a God revealed in the Psalms. Or heck, maybe even in the front row seat they had uh, getting to see God in flesh, but it wasn't the case. Their vision came from what they had experienced on the opposite side 
of Rome's power and authority. If Rome usurped all their power by force, by means of extortion and violence and brutality, then that must be how power and authority is taken. They didn't have an imagination for anything different. So not long after Peter identifies the Messiah, Jesus tries to reframe all of this. He tells them, the Messiah has to go through much suffering. I, I will be rejected. And he says all this quite openly, to which Peter quickly sidebars him and tells him what's going on. Hey, uh, Jesus, this can't be the fate of God. This cannot be the destiny of the Messiah. You're supposed to save us, so how can you save us if you're suffering? It just doesn't work that way. But as quick as Peter spouts off, Jesus really quickly turns his rebuke on its head. Jesus calls it how it is. Peter has concocted a Messiah, a God, in the very image of every king, leader, or emperor that he had known or heard about. Peter can't see Jesus being a king or a Messiah or God in any other way than it had been modeled for him. Because in Peter's worldview, kings don't suffer. They impose suffering on their enemies or anyone who gets in their way of what they want to accomplish. Kings aren't rejected or abandoned. They're surrounded by the lifestyle of the rich and the famous. They can get away with whatever they want. In Peter's worldview, gods don't suffer. That's part of what it means to be God. And gods certainly aren't killed. That's like the baseline benefit package of what it means to be God. And so Peter's here thinking, if you think you have a flying chance that you're going to save us, that you're going to set things right, you better pick up on their tactics. You've got to mimic their moves. You have to be one step ahead of them. It, it sure seems they know a few things about taking power and authority and how to use it. So Jesus, you might want to take some notes. But it's on the cross. The cross tells a different story. In all of its darkness and horror, it's a revolutionary revelation of what it means to be God and the surprising way that God is working to save the world. Now, Lent is this season where we say we look at Jesus and we look at ourselves and we confess the difference. But given that Jesus' journey to Jerusalem ends with him hanging on a cross, maybe we need to offer a qualifier to that confession. So in Lent, we look at Jesus on the cross, the clearest image of the invisible God that we have. We look at ourselves, the ones who put him up there, and we confess the difference. I'll ask it again. What does it say of God that God might end up on a cross and then have that cross in light of the resurrection be the means by which God is saving the world? And then what does it say about us, humanity, that we would want to crucify him for it? St. Athanasius, a priest and bishop in the 3rd and 4th century, spent much of his life in ministry fighting against this heresy called Arianism. So at the time, there was a fellow priest in the area named Arius. He started teaching that Jesus, the Son of God, was not on the same level of the Father. One, the Father was the one who created the cosmos, and the Son was then created by the Father. This is how Arius justified and understood that Jesus could be crucified. 
Athanasius, on the other hand, defended the Trinitarian confession we see in the Nicene Creed. There is one God revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So as Athanasius is starting to develop uh, his understanding of what does it mean for God to become human, he comes to this conclusion. For the Son of Man became human so that we might become God. In other words, God entered into the realities of what it means to be human. God takes on flesh and all that comes with it. Mortality, emotion, potential, decay. God does that so that we, humanity, might take on the realities of the Godhead. Those realities being the self-giving, self-sacrificial, canonic love. And so if the cross is truly this revolutionary revelation of what it means to be God, then we fix our eyes in the season of Lent on Jesus on the cross, and we confess the difference. Now, when we say the word God, we, like Peter and the disciples, make all sorts of assumption, assumptions about what it means to be God. If we start with a view of God as the greatest being ever possible, all-powerful, utter supreme, then we, along with the disciples, are going to have a really difficult time trying to fit Jesus' cry of dereliction and abandonment into that view of God, unless we want to just agree with Arius. In our assumption, to be God means that God must possess sovereign power to make everything turn out all right for us, at least in the long run. But when Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Our idolatry is revealed. This is not the God that we had in mind. The God we had in mind comes to ruin in these words from the cross. The God we assume is just but a name that we use to impose our own purposes and our own plans is shown to be nothing more than an idol. In light of the cross and in light of these words of Jesus on the cross. And so it takes a moment of darkness, darkness covering the land for us to see Jesus for who Jesus really is, the Son of God, God in flesh. We see Jesus, God on the cross, is not God becoming what God was not. God doesn't, for this brief moment, shed the title of God. God doesn't self-alienate so that the Father isn't affected by the suffering of the Son. This is not God becoming what God was not. On the cross, we witness what God has always been. The cross is not something other than God. It's not God giving up what we think it means to be God. It is God revealing what God has always been. It's the very character of God on display, complete, self-emptying, made possible by perfect love. And in hearing that we and, and, and in hearing that, we too want to take Jesus aside like Peter and tell him what's up. Look, to be God means power, power to fix things, complete freedom to do what you dang well want to do, power to make the world work right, preferably for our benefit. So please, Jesus, get down from the cross. Don't embarrass yourself. Would you stand up and act like God? And he just hangs there. Will Willimon writes that what we call God is usually some form of Pontius Pilate. Force, power, violent means for a host of allegedly noble, but in reality, selfish ends. 
So when we confess, what we're doing is we're telling the truth, the truth about who we are and the truth about who God is. But I think there's part of us that would rather confess the difference between us and the God that we've made. It would be much easier to tell the truth of that God because the difference is in his law. If we're confessing the difference between us and Jesus on the cross and not the God of our own making or the the God that comforts our sensibilities or or the, the God that we caricature after the pharaohs and Caesars of our world, then the truth is that this God, to, to achieve victory, does not use our weapons. This God does not share our sentimental definition of love. This God is not somehow preserved from life's horrors, but is present in life's horrors. It's in the darkness, in the suffering of this moment and all moments that God is revealed. The cross is the utter revelation of the love of God. It is the sign of how far love will go to make love's point. And the point is this, God is reclaiming the world. God is taking back all power and authority that our idols have usurped, not by means of violent force or manipulation, but by suffering love. It is in suffering that God is most revealed. It is in darkness that we can see God for who God really is. And it's through suffering love, through a cry of abandonment, that God is reclaiming the world. Now, these words of Jesus are still haunting to us. Because we don't want to know that this is the kind of God we got. The kind of God who, when it gets dark, doesn't immediately switch on the lights. But rather comes and hangs out with us. On the cross, in the dark and lets us in on the most intimate conversations within the very heart of the Trinity. This kind of God knows your suffering. This kind of God knows your feelings of abandonment because this kind of God can be found in those places. So when you've lost your job and you feel God forsaken, God is there. When you've lost a loved one, God is there. When you find yourself crying when you leave work, God is there. When you're at the end of your rope and you don't feel like you can take another step, God is there. When you feel God forsaken, you're not. For nothing can now separate you from the love of God because in suffering love, God has entered into the darkest and most desolate God-forsaken spaces of our lives. It's in the darkness on a weary Friday afternoon And it's in the darkness of our lives that we see God for who God really is. And this kind of God is willing to give God's very self just to have you. This kind of God will enter into our suffering, take on our realities so that we might participate in the reality that is God for the sake of the world. And so each week we come to this table, this table that retells the story of the cross. Suffering love, body broken, blood shed for the sake of the world. We come to this table as a means by which we might participate in the reality of God. And in remembering this story, it becomes our story. We receive the body and blood of Jesus who was and is broken and poured out so that we might become that which we receive, broken and poured out for the sake of the world.
It was at dinner on the night before Jesus was betrayed by those he came to save that he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it saying, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you eat it, remember me. Then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant of my blood. Whenever you drink this, do so in affectionate remembrance of me. So anyone who recognizes their need for grace is invited to this table. We want no barriers, so our bread is gluten-free and our wine is non-alcoholic. When you come, I'm going to invite you to come down the center aisle and come with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. Approach one of these servers, listen to what they have to say, dip the bread in the cup and be thankful. And if for any reason you cannot make it down the aisle, just wave over here at Macy and she'll be sure to serve you. So friends, when you are ready, you're invited to this table. Friends, each week we invite our congregation to respond to what they've heard by entering into a weekly spiritual practice. You can find the episode to the practice and enter into this way of Jesus in the podcast feed. May the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you wherever you go.